Our Future Now is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Our media partners are Parentology. When we say Black Lives Matter, it was never just about the police, but all the ways in which systems and institutions oppress and harm Black people, right? Hey everyone, I'm Jonah Gottlieb and I'm the co-founder and executive director of the National Children's Campaign. And I'm Natalie Meebane, the co-founder and vice president of public policy and government relations. Welcome to this week's episode of Our Future Now. And today we are really happy to welcome with us Sherelle Brown, a longtime police abolitionist and fighter for Black lives and the lead organizer for 350.org, an international climate organization. Today, we'll be discussing why climate organizing is racial justice work and how environmental organizations can center racial justice in everything that they do. We talk about the next steps after defunding the police and what our world could look like. So I really want to give a big welcome to Sherelle Brown. Welcome, Sherelle. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. And for all the work you guys do. Definitely. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. And, you know, we're really excited to have you on in terms of everything that you have been working on for years. Tell us a little bit about what you've done, who you are, what you do. Ooh. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I often start off um, talking about my organizing story with talking about where I'm from, because it's such an important part of who I am. I'm from a small town uh, called Larnburg, North Carolina, a population like maybe 12,000. It's a place where we got excited when we got a super Walmart, you know, (laughs) a town that's based, that was based largely on industry and factories for jobs. And that was until the late nineties when all those factory jobs packed up and left and left a huge swath of the population, particularly black folks without jobs. And a few years later in its place, a prison was built and it became sort of the place that was known for creating sort of an economic opportunity for people in Larnberg. So sooner or later, either you knew someone who worked at this prison or you knew someone who was being caged inside. And that was my first sort of interaction with prison systems, both as an economic project, but also as something that was devouring our communities and kind of sparked my interest in in working particularly around like abolition work. Um, I didn't really get sort of my organizing boots until I went to school in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, my, shout out to my political and beloved community center. And we did lots of work around police accountability um, and environmental justice. You know, I recently, by recently, I mean maybe in the last year, kind of got into, into green work officially as a job. Um, but one of my first activation points was actually um, as a student at North Carolina A&T, we were organizing against a landfill called White Street Landfill. Now, this was a landfill that was being opened in a predominantly Black side of town or reopened rather because it was open in previous years um, and the city council wanted to reopen it for the sake of saving money even though we had all these high rates of cancer um, but also plaguing East Greensboro was a lot of police violence so I was in college both organizing these communities around issues of environmental racism with the landfill um, but also um, very violent um, interactions with the police and that was kind of my introductory introduction into the work um, And so I've never untethered the two things, right? Some folks often ask, like, how did you get into climate work from doing police work for 10 years? And for me, it was always one thing, right? It's always, it's all a part of sort of the same system. Um, And I've been doing that work for the last 11 years, particularly within the movement for Black Lives. Um, And in 2014, like so many other folks, um, was sort of rebaptized in Black liberation work via the Ferguson uprisings. 
um, I was present there the first couple of weeks when folks were taken to the streets and resisting uh, and saw just whew, the amount of violence this country was ready to enact on our people um, to protect a system uh, that has been harmful. And so I can go on and on and on and on and on about different watershed events, but thinking back, my upbringing is in the small rural town, the city of Greensboro, which was my political home, and of course, Ferguson were three sort of watershed moments in my life and in my trajectory um, story as an organizer. I think that's really important what you said about you can't separate racial justice organizing from, you know, any other issue because all these issues that, you know, people are fighting for disproportionately impact black and brown communities. And so I guess I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more just why, first of all, you know, should folks really be making racial justice a part of their advocacy? And then what steps can they take to ensure that they're doing everything they can to make it happen? Yeah, thanks, Jonah, for that question. It's a good one. Um, I think often when organizations think about racial justice work, um, the first thing we think about is diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is great. I, um, Chevron, you know, <laughs> fossil fuel industry, one of the biggest polluters, sent a tweet out like a few days ago or last week uh, that said Black Lives Matter. And then they were summarily dragged on Twitter because they're like, how dare you? These <laughs> people who've harmed Black and brown communities for so long tweet something like Black Lives Matter. And I think they responded something like, you know, well, we're committed to fostering diversity and inclusion on all levels of our company. And now often, it reminds me often of how nonprofits see <laughs> racial justice work through simply the lens of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And again, those things are important, but that in and of itself is not the goal. That's a means to the goal, right? Diversity is important, but we also have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to just add black and brown faces when we haven't done enough to the culture and the values um, and question the foundation of the organization, right? And thinking through how we undo white supremacist culture from the inside. So when people say, hey, what can my organization do? I say, think about what the political line is. What does your org do for black lives beyond the question of diversity, right? Because we often see some of the worst offenders and oppressors, we'll throw that up in a second. We're diverse, you know, we include everybody. Um, And I remind people often that white supremacy has gotten so good at surviving, at shifting for its survival, that sometimes it can be enacted, right? And perpetuated without a white face around. I know that's a really deep answer to the question you asked, Um, but I really want folks to kind of dig deep when they talk about racial justice and see it beyond simply a question of equality and diversity, um, because it means so much more than that to really do the work. You know, thinking about that, as as you mentioned, in terms of how organizations show up for racial justice, and you did mention Chevron, which I remember that tweet, I remember that statement, and I remember the reaction from it. And it was really funny. It was like they didn't see the, uh, I guess they didn't see an irony that they are essentially one of the main companies hurting black and brown communities with pollution, with refineries, with pipelines, with everything that they do. And yet they think that it would be a trendy thing to say, hey, we stand with black lives. And then when pressed for it, it's like, oh, no, we're trying to be more diverse, as if they're diverse, diverse makeup, if they do have a diverse makeup, who knows, in their corporate headquarters is the same thing as not harming black and brown communities. And so I'm very happy you mentioned that because it is funny that uh, I think that in the times that we're in in the past month, it has become a bit trendy, a little bit trendy to say Black Lives Matter when that used to be the, the, the bad words, 
Exactly. No, it used to be those three phrases, those three words together used to be cursing. Um, And all of a sudden, curse, it went, it's good to curse the people now because Black Lives (laughs) Matter is suddenly in. And even Chevron wants a piece of the woke pie. You know, the woke, the woke pie of it. And for organizations who hopefully are not as harmful as Chevron, hopefully, but for groups that are, say, they do work in kind of like a social justice world. They work in some advocacy. Maybe they work Mm -hmm. in health, but they're not explicitly about racial justice. How would you say for them, like, how can they focus on racial justice in terms of making it a part of their work and do it comfortably so it doesn't look like they are performing wokeness, but in a way that's really authentic? Yeah, that's a really good question, Natalie. Um, First, I encourage folks to like, take a look at your mission statement. Take a look at the work that you do, your values, right? Your vision. Does any of it come into contradiction with black liberation work? Meaning does anything you do reaffirm systems of oppression at at, at the very least, right? Even if you don't expressly talk about, you know, Black Lives Mattering or um, go so deep into the black liberation politics, if you're at least trying to do some good, think about the ways in which um, you could potentially be harmful um, without realizing it, right? I think the other thing is following Black leadership at the grassroots level, at the local level, at the national level, and not in a way that makes you like cower in the corner and say, I'm just going to follow Black, because folks have agency, right? You, there are things you can do, um, but to listen to Black leadership when they say what it is that they need and not come in parachuting and assuming what folks need. Some of that can mean literally moving resources, right? We have a bunch of underfunded, grassroots organizations, folks doing good work who are operating on shoestring budgets. How can you um, use your platform to either donate money to them or get your base to donate money to them? You know, shout out to 350 uh, two weeks ago during um, a call we had around supporting the movement for Black Lives. Our base raised about $100,000 for the bail fund over a week time. That was a really important move and offering that we can make to the movement. But it's also important that these organizations try not to be extractive in those relationships, right? to not see this as an opportunity to fundraise, but instead an opportunity to really sit and listen and to also interrogate the ways you show up in movement spaces, right? Uh, Cause we all have ways or things to learn and unlearn and be better on. And we see organizations doing that in, in this moment. And it's really exciting because I think folks are like reflecting and pushing each other to do better. And I think when organizations take bold steps, other organizations are watching and saying, hey, okay, the staff are saying internally, we can do that too. We can push our folks to, take both steps as well so it's really exciting absolutely and it's not just the climate movement it's not just the environmental movement that should be doing that obviously that's your background but you know for folks who are you know fighting in education you know talking about how all the issues within the education system disproportionately impact black folks in in those spaces in healthcare, the you know black maternal mortality crisis, gun violence, how that you know obviously disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. It goes on and on. And so, no matter what you're fighting for, you are fighting for racial justice, whether you know it or not. Absolutely. And so now, what you have to be doing is explicitly saying it, you know, with your whole chest. This is what we're standing for. Absolutely, Jonah. When we say Black Lives Matter, it was never just about the police but all the ways in which systems and institutions oppress and harm black people, right? Whether it be police in schools, whether it be the fact that Flint doesn't have any drinking water, you know, whether we're talking about the hog farms in East North Carolina back home, who are, you know, big polluters, right? We're talking about all the ways in which black life is disrupted and not protected and devalued. 
You know, I'm, I want to go back to something you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier about where you mentioned the word, you said abol- abolish the police. Now, yeah. I know on our episode uh, a couple weeks ago, we had Anthony Rogers Wright um, as a guest as well, along with Devin Del Palacio. And we talked extensively about what the the slogan defund the police means, yeah. because that's been something that has been uh, really become a new sort of rallying cry, right, yeah. in the last month. And we kind of went into like what that means in terms of really reallocating resources rather than saying that police departments completely close. But I'd love to hear you explain exactly what is abolish the police and does it differ than defund yeah. the police? Like how how is it different? Yeah, thank you for this question because it's, it's the question that everyone's asking. You know, I hear people like, oh, when they say defund, they just mean, you know, they don't mean close the police departments. When they say defund, they just mean, you know, take five dollars. And I'm like, no, um, we know again. The thing I like about defund the police as a demand is that it allows um, a common ground space for everyone. People who aren't abolitionists and people, again, who at least agree that folks don't need to be having military grade weaponry <laughs> at the police departments to kind of like coalesce around this popularized demand. But I want to be clear that defunding the police is a part of an abolitionist framework, right? And what we see happening now is co-option. Folks are saying, oh, that's not what that means. It is exactly what it means. We know some folks aren't going to go there with us just yet, but defund the police is a means to abolition um, and is a part of an abolitionist framework. And so when we say abolish the police, we mean exactly that. We mean reduce the scope of the police, reduce the funding of the police, uh, until we get to a place where we're ready to think of different alternatives, right? And we don't have to go far to imagine what that could look like. We have communities in America that <laughs> have less police presence, believe it or not. Um, you know, and there's reasons why, because they have more resources for other things. They have resources for mental health care services. They have resources for drug rehabilitation, right? All the things that really affluent people do to keep their children out of jail when they commit like a hit and run or something, that's what it looks like when a world has less police. It's just the same resources and offerings and services that allow us to get at the root issue um, that don't lean on the prison industrial complex or police to solve a lot of social ill issues, right? So when I say abolish the police, I do mean I dream of a world where they don't exist. I do mean I dream of a world where we don't respond to homelessness or mental health crisis or drug addiction with police officers. And often we'll get the the well what about the murderers and the rapists right and that's an important question um i'll i'll quote dr davis who says those are very extreme cases in the city of atlanta we probably had 30 murders this year and we've had at least seventeen thousand arrests though as it relates to quality of life offenses those are like panhandling loitering right and so we see police largely responding to things around social ill and not even violent crimes the police aren't even deployed for lots of violent crimes when we break down statistics i'm gonna give you some numbers Less than 24% of the cases of rape are actually ever reported to the police in the first place. Less than 5% are adjudicated. Less than 1% make it to jail. So we're already not solving the problem around sexual violence, right? But we do know prisons themselves are sites of sexual harm. We do know prisons are sites of misgendering and violence. And so really the call to defund the police isn't just about taking money away from them. It's about how do we take that and reinvest it into our communities? And this is also often a tough conversation to have because people talk about good cops. They talk about their mama, their parents, you know, dad, somebody they know who's a cop. And I often mention that, you know, folks do have well intentions sometimes often in going into the force. But we just saw two weeks ago, probably a slew of very triggering videos across social media of cops kicking, slamming, tasing, shooting, 
chokeholding folks. Um, and there weren't enough good cops to stop that, right? So what does it mean to be a good officer in service of an inherently anti-Black institution? Now, maybe on another podcast, I can get into the history of policing and you know how they were founded on catching slaves and also calling worker rebellion, which is important to understand when we're talking about the functions of police. Um, but I will stop talking right there. <laughs> no, you don't have to stop. I'm learning so much. I just want to say, Sherelle, I'm real for real. I'm learning just by sitting here, hearing I'm learning. And, you know, we all saw what happened just a few weeks ago with Rayshard Brooks. Mm-hmm. And he was the man who was murdered after sleeping in his car at the Wendy's. Right. And, you know, it could have been a, a simple, like, maybe it had something to drink and was like, you know what, I need to sleep it off. It's not safe for me to drive right now. Let me go find a safe place to pull over yeah. and sleep until I am sober enough, which is a responsible thing to do, right? And as we saw, the police were called for something that there was no violent crime committed, right? There was right. no, nobody called. And I heard the 911 tape. They played it on the news. The lady was like, yeah, I tried to wake him up. I think he might be intoxicated. I couldn't get him up. Could you come get him? Something like, I need somebody to wake this dude up so he can move, <laughs> right? Because yeah. he's blocking the drive through Something that really does not require a, uh, a response of, of a violence, right? Yeah. It's more of like, oh, this is a nuisance call, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you can see, something that should have been very simple as like a nuisance call ended up in him and in, in his, you know, essentially his murder, and I understand, okay, yes, they were trying to arrest him and he resisted. We get all that. We saw all that, right? We saw that he ran away. But running away out of fear is not threatening. Yeah. In fact, I'm not afraid of anyone who runs from me. Exactly. You know what I mean? I exactly. mean, I'm, I'd be afraid of somebody run at me, but I'm not afraid of anyone who runs away from me. Right, exactly. They're, again, they're literally afraid of you. They're showing, like, I am afraid of you. I am running away. And he has every reason to be afraid. Absolutely. Because as he was, you know, 27 years old, I think so. 27. He spent 27 years of his life as a black man in this country. Yeah. Knowing that at any time, even if he did comply, even if he was, you know, calm and cool and was like, oh, well, I guess I might be getting a DUI, even though he wasn't driving. Um, But whatever, the consequences that could come from that. And he chose to flee, I'm assuming, out of fear. Yeah. And from when talking about in terms of you said, I didn't know the you know, Atlanta had you know, only maybe 30 murders this past year so far, right? Six months through, mm-hmm. considering that you said 17,000 arrests, what are those arrests for? Yeah. If, if they are just for lifestyle things like a nuisance, yeah. are we really spending all these billions or millions of dollars across the country to uh, employ people to regulate some things that are just like lifestyle nuisances? So I'm just happy you pointed on that. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And really quickly, I'll say, you know, when people say, what would defund the police look like? In this instance, defunding the police would have looked like somebody calling him a, an Uber or a tow truck instead of the cops, you know, and he would have still been here with us. It's about finding different ways to respond and care for our people, right? Um, and I'm, I, get, I get out on police data so I can go in all day about <laughs> arrests were made for what. Um, but much like the broken windows policing that happens in New York City, quality of life offenses about those things around like, you know, vandalism, panhandling. You know, in a city like Atlanta that is plagued with houseless people, it's no wonder why we have so many arrests related to quality of life offenses. You know, things like sleeping outside on the sidewalk in a place you're not supposed to, right? Why aren't we taking 
the 33% of money we're putting into police in Atlanta and figuring out a way to house folks, right? That right there will cut half those arrests down. You know what I'm saying? So, so yeah, I, <laughs> and I promise you Atlanta is not um, a special case. I promise you, if you look at your city's data, you'll find something similar. We've actually been doing our own research on like police funding and 33% is actually from what we've wow. seen relatively low compared to the like percentage of, you know, cities budgets that are going to police. Yeah. I yeah. heard this quote from AOC uh, a few weeks ago. She said like in response to what would a defunded police system look like? And she just said, it would be a suburb. <laughs> yeah. it, it would just look like a suburb. It would be, it would be Rayshard Brooks, you know, having either just being left alone or it would, you know, be someone who's not armed and not, you know, holding any power over him, yeah. you know, coming to help him out and, you know, clear a driveway. Yeah, exactly. And what I assume AOC meant when she means suburbs is the the kind of the idea we get of suburbs of right of like white affluent areas of yeah. town. Because I often remind people also Ferguson is technically a suburb of mm-hmm. St. Louis. But yeah, areas that have resources, right? We see safe communities aren't communities with more police. They're communities with more resources, with more opportunities. And so I would venture to guess in a society that took care of folks a bit better, where pay was more adequate, where we had housing and free health care, folks wouldn't have to resort to that kind of thing, which would automatically, right, decrease the number of violent crimes we see. Yeah, I mean, we've seen, you know, especially in other countries where they've, you know, implemented a lot of these systems is when you use government money for helping people and providing for housing and healthcare and education, their lives get better and they commit, they commit less crimes. And so it solves itself. Exactly. It seems like a no brainer almost, right, Jonah? Yeah. But, (laughs) but that's when we get into thinking through, well, what is the actual purpose of police? If we see what the solution is right there and we're not investing in that, can we think about the other reasons why folks might want to keep them around? Again, linking back to fossil fuel companies and Wall Street, about the idea of protecting property, right? George Floyd was killed over a $20 check, essentially property, right? And so, again, harking back to, to what the initial purpose of the police were in the very beginning. I'm not going to get into a whole history lesson here, y'all. I promise I'm not going to geek out. <laughs> but a part of it was because, you know, the wealthy elite in Europe wanted to have military forces um, to control crowds. It was about crowd control. So you had this revolution happening in France, workers who were coalescing in the streets saying, we want fair wages. We want a more adequate workspaces, you know, um, and they were rebelling. And the rich were like, hold up, homies, we can't have all this happening. So we're going to get some folks to come in here and control y'all. That was the beginnings of police, right? Similarly, in the North, in New York, folks were taken to the streets, rebelling, and what the folks got together and said, Nah, <laughs> we need some police. We need some military forces to, to hold this down, right? And in the South, it took the shape of folks, um, again, controlling newly free Black people and also catching um, enslaved Black people who had escaped. Um, and I think that's just important to name because the idea of police being found as control crowds is largely how we saw them show up two weeks ago, right? You know, protests were, were peaceful until the cops showed up in riot gear, right? And so, again... We see baked into the DNA of police, really, the purpose of one, protecting property, two, making a compliant workforce, three, catching slaves. So what does it mean to think you can reform something that is institutionally, inherently, and systemically about those things? 
You know, just a follow up on that, when you gave a bit of the history of policing and how it actually came to be, like you said, it became a, a force essentially to protect property, which mm-hmm. enslaved people were property. And it became a, like you mentioned in the U.S., at least it's history of catching enslaved people who had run away, right? Protecting the property of the rich white landowner, the person mm-hmm. who had the power and control. It kind of, I'm wondering in terms of, you even mentioned like history in Europe in terms of controlling crowds when people are having uprisings, uh, fighting for, you know, fair wages for, for just better love, better quality of life. But what would you say is what we can do in terms of, we do have the police force that is in existence yeah. and it isn't going to disappear necessarily in its full form. And we do want people, of course, to have somebody to call if there is a violent crime. Do you think that, you know, is it legislation? Like, can we legislate our way out of this? Um, here's what I say. And again, I always say I, I'm, I'm very clear, folks. I'm an abolitionist. Um, I, I don't believe in reforms, not simply because I don't think they do enough, but also because I don't believe in things that reaffirm the legitimacy of police, right? In a lot of ways. Um, I don't think they could be reformed. And I remind folks, in Minneapolis, you know, there's there was this campaign, Eight Can't Wait, by D. Ray McKesson and Campaign Zero. A lot of performance demands within that. The issue is, you know, one of those in the platform was talking about um, a duty to intervene, meaning police officers have to step in when they see other officers causing excessive, causing excessive harm. That was already in place in Minneapolis when George Floyd was murdered by a cop while three other cops sat by and watched, right? Tamir Rice, who would have been 18, um, was killed in Ohio, who already had uh, the requirement to warn folks before shooting, right? Which is another thing that's a part of a lot of reformist demands these days. A lot of these police departments already have these reforms in place. And we're saying, hey, <laughs> we don't want to be shot less. We don't want to be asked nicely if you can shoot us, right? We're not trying to, uh, for less violence. We want no violence. We want no black deaths. Absolutely. I think that, you know, when the, it can't wait platform was announced. The mayor of Chicago said that she couldn't do anything because the city of Chicago had already implemented all eight reforms. And yet literally as she was saying that her police were out there tear gassing and shooting people with rubber bullets for peacefully protesting. Exactly. I think it's just a perfect example of reform will never be enough. Mm -hmm. So I want to circle back to something you were talking about earlier with the history of police. And you talked about one of their original purposes was cracking down on workers' rights and Mm -hmm. being union busters. And so back to what, you know, we were talking about at the top of the episode about what can people do who are already in organizing spaces to be explicitly fighting for racial justice. A lot of folks who are in unions are in coalition with police unions. And so what can what can labor organizers do to make sure that they're not having to be aligned with police unions? Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one, Joda, and one that we've been trying to think through for a while. So I believe in labor. I believe in unions, right? Um, and unfortunately, a lot of our bigger unions, um, are, are, you know, some of our folks in labor movement have picked the wrong side, right? Um, and saying, you know, well, we have to do this because police are also workers. And again, reminding of the history, to me, police aren't workers, right? If I could be so bad, I'll say police are actually class traders. And police unions have a history of being some of the most violent forces. And that's true 
for municipalities and police departments across the country. Unions are often the protector of killer cops. And so we just have to keep pushing on the inside. Those of us who are in labor, who are in unions, just have to keep pushing folks to reconsider the connection and the relationship we have to police. You know, as talking about how with everything that we know, with the history of police and how it came to be and sort of that, you know, legislation alone can't do it for for all of our listeners, for anyone of any age. What would you tell them is something that they could do right now, something that they could really uh, fight for? Because I feel like a lot of folks feel a bit helpless. You know, a lot of folks don't really know what the next step is of how they can engage. They see this police force that isn't what they want it to be. They want to have something that they still feel that makes them feel protected. And mm-hmm. is there is there any next step or any any group that you think could really work on this or that you think people could do right now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a few things. I'll I mention some individual things folks can do and then some um, ways to contribute to this current political uprising. Um, firstly, interrogate the ways in which you use the police in your life, right? If you have a noisy neighbor, consider maybe I don't need to call the cop on them. Maybe there's a different way to handle this. Um, and apply that to other interactions in your life, right? What are some ways in which you can potentially not use the police or call them less uh, at the very baseline? Two, get involved. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're really interested and want to do more, get involved in thinking through your local police budgeting, right? There's lots of folks right now who are making moves to, um, to have more community control over city council budgets and, and um, community budgets. Um, and so getting involved in those efforts and seeing just how much your, um, your local city council spends on policing um, is really important. Um, and ACRE uh, is a dope organization you can Google. They actually have a resource where you can just type in your city right now and they'll show you exactly how much they're spending on police. Um, and then third, find a political home. By that, I mean a place that does the work you feel called to do. You don't have to be a critical race theorist. You don't have to be a public speaker. You ain't got to be the one out there with a bullhorn, but everyone has a role and we need everyone at their post in this moment. And then if you have nothing but, if you don't have time, but you have resources to donate, uh, check out the movement of Black Lives. There's about 150 Black-led organizations within that umbrella. Plenty of folks there to donate some money and or time to. I think that's a really great way to end it is just tying it back into no matter what you do, you are already engaging in racial justice organizing if you are an organizer. And so now make sure that your work is openly and unapologetically fighting for black lives and join amazing organizers like Sherelle in this fight. Awesome. Thank you, Jonah. And you, I appreciate all the work you're doing. Definitely. Thank you so much, Sherelle, for joining us. Um, I want to thank you for your work at 350.org as a climate organizer, leading the fight there, and also for your work, long history of your work and fighting for, for black lives, black liberation and for abolishing the police. And if you want to tell folks how they can get in touch with you, if you you know want to tell us your Twitter or anything like that, we'd love to have you let us know. Yeah, you can follow me at awkward underscore duck. That's A-W-K-W-A-R-D underscore duck, D-U-C-K. Uh, follow at your own risk. Tweets are thoughts of my own. They represent no one particular organization. Uh, I am grown grown. So you'll see that also reflects it on my Twitter account. <laughs> or if Twitter's not your thing, you can email me at sherellebrown13 at gmail.com. Thanks for having me on, y'all. It's been great. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Our Future Now. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your family and friends. Please be sure to check out the resources that Sherelle gave, which are in the show notes of this episode. Also, the Justice and Policing Act 
recently passed the House of Representatives. We need it to move in the Senate and become law. Make sure to call, tweet, and overall email your senators to tell them to please introduce and pass the Justice and Policing Act. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. I'm Jonah Gottlieb. And I'm Natalie Mebane. We'll see you next time on Our Future Now.